16 and at verse 11. That's on page 1204. Luke chapter 15 at verse 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. May the Lord bless thee reading of his own word. Now, we'll be going into the sermon if the uh, Sabbath school pupils wish to uh, go out just now. Um, We're turning to Luke in this uh, chapter at uh, perhaps verse 14 in particular. But we can read from verse 12. So that's 12 to 14. where the younger of the sons says to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land. And he began to be in want. He began to be in want or he began to be in need. 
Now, you'll remember from the last Sabbath evening that the theme of this parable and the two before it is lost and found, or the lost being found. We have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And you'll remember that these uh, three parables are addressed essentially to church people, to the leaders of the church at the time, the rulers who were Pharisees, who were objecting that Christ received sinners and ate with them. Sinners, of course, you'll remember, covers outcasts, people who were considered beyond the pale, beyond hope, people that God was evidently not really interested in. But Christ received those sinners and he ate with them, which to the church leaders was a sign that he really somehow approved of them or had fellowship with them. Now, these outcasts, these sinners, these tax collectors and harlots, were people who by um, choice and by behavior had moved away from the house of God. They had done so voluntarily, and therefore, why bother with them? Or to be bothering with them and to be spending time with them indicated that you were really like them yourself. So you'll remember that the purpose of the parables is essentially to show two things. First of all, that God is actually searching out such people. Far from having nothing to do with them, God is actually searching them out. Now, they are not the only kind of people that God is searching out. He's also searching out people within the church and even people outside the church who have not gone to the lengths in poor living as these people have. But the point is that he is also seeking them out. And then again, as well as seeking them out, there is rejoicing in heaven when these sinners turn back. When the lost are found, there is joy in the presence of the angels, joy indeed in the heart of God himself. Now, in this uh, third parable here, you'll remember that the focus falls on the Father. The previous two parables have a focus on Jesus, the shepherd seeking the sheep, and also on the Holy Spirit, working through the church, the woman sweeping till she finds the coin. But here, the focus shifts to the Father. The reason for that is because Jesus is moving away from objects or things like sheep and coins, and he's moving towards people. This time, the lost is a person, not a sheep, not a coin. Now, of course, the sheep symbolizes a person. We know that. The coin symbolizes a person, too. We know that. But this time, the Lord actually chooses a son or a man. And the reason he does that is so we can actually enter into the experience of the lost, their experience of what it is to be lost, and their experience of what it is to be found. With an inanimate object like a coin, we can't do that. 
the focus simply falls on God searching them out. Same with a sheep. It's animate, but it's not human. The focus again falls on the shepherd finding the sheep. This time, there's an emphasis on the sinner himself. What is it to be lost? How did I become lost? How does it feel to be lost? And what is it to be found? And just last of all, by way of introduction, we noticed too last time that the person lost here is actually a son. He has the status of a son. In fact, his father has two sons. So he has an older brother as well as a father. Now, it's important to notice what I tried to uh, teach last Sabbath evening, that these sons are not sons by creation. Well, of course they are, but that's not the point here. Neither are they sons by adoption. They have not been adopted into the family of God. They They are not Christians. They are not born again. What they are is sons by covenant. Just like in the Old Testament, when you were united to Israel, you were united to God's firstborn son. You became part of his external family, the church. So under the new covenant, when you join with the people of God, you become part of God's covenant family. And indeed, if you are born to parents in that household, you too as children are born and raised as part of God's covenant family. You are his covenant sons and daughters. And uh, that will become important a little later on when we consider the older brother and who he is too. But for now, they both have the same footing. They start out in exactly the same footing. They enjoy the same benefits and privileges of belonging to their father's house. And uh, that puts everybody Uh, born into the household of God, born into the church. It puts them all on the same footing. You are baptized people, raised in the covenant, in a place of nurture and admonition. Now, that is something that is little thought of. It's been too little thought of. I doubt if any of us gave that the serious consideration that we should have given it. And I doubt if any of us have really considered what it is to be lost having been in such a situation. Once sons, sons by covenant, and having a place in our father's house. In any case, this man's status is the status of sonship. He is a son of God, along with his elder brother. Now, I want this morning to come secondly to his fall And you have it outlined in the verses that we read there. From verse 12, where he asks for the inheritance, right down to verse 16, where he's feeding the pigs, envying them the pods that they eat, and no one gives him anything. Now, how does a man with such a status come to such degradation? How does he fall and how does he fall so far? Well, I think it's important for us to recognize right away that his fall begins in his own heart. 
and it begins with his own internal and voluntary rejection of his own father's house. He chooses to leave it. He chooses to leave it because he wants to leave it. He wants to leave it so much that he chooses to do so. Now, we don't know how that process began, but he began to tire of it. Now, the fact is, I suppose, that unless God uh, touches your heart, in fact, unless he renews your heart, unless he revolutionizes your heart altogether, then I suppose, to some degree or another, you're going to feel this kind of weariness in your father's house. You are going to feel like you don't belong, that it somehow isn't yours. Um, in a way, that's how Ishmael felt in his father's house. Ishmael felt that he would like his father's wealth, and he would like his father's status, but he didn't like his father's religion. And that's why, at the end of the day, he found himself cast out of his father's house. That's because in his heart he didn't belong to it. And in fact, Jesus um, alluded to that in the New Testament when he speaks of a son and a servant. He says you can have the status of a son while in heart you are a servant. And if, if at heart you are a servant, you shall cast out, be cast out. You will not inherit along with a son if you are in heart a servant. Now, when this man decides to reject his father's house, what he's really, of course, rejecting is God and the religion, the only true and living religion of the only true and living God. Now, that process begins in the heart, and we don't know where it is. I mean, you're all here today, some of you are listening online, but it's quite possible that, again, although you're with the worshipping assembly, you are in the worshipping assembly you stand when we stand, you sit when we sit. It's possible that your heart is doing none of these things. Maybe inside you have resolved already that you are leaving your father's house. God is not for you. The church is not for you. How little you realize that you are saying that heaven is not for you and that glory is not for you. How little you realize that by opting out of the things of God, you are opting into hell and into a lost eternity. I mean, this young man, when he left his father's house, didn't dream. He didn't dream that he'd be sitting with pigs, envying them their food, destitute, hungry, and abandoned, with a world that he chose not caring for him. He never dreamt of that. And I suppose in one way we can understand how when you take a choice, you don't realize where that choice is leading through an inevitable chain of events and an inevitable chain and succession of choices. But the fact of the matter is that we don't need to foresee it because we are foretold the thing. I mean, God tells us what the eventual result of rejection of himself is. So you can dream of whatever you think you're going to get by rejecting God and his house. But God tells you that's not what you're going to get. The end of that path is ultimately destruction. Broad gate, broad road, but the end thereof is destruction. And of course, by destruction, I mean what the Lord means by destruction. 
the destruction of both soul and body in hell. Not annihilation. You will wish it was. But just the ongoing destruction of body and soul in hell. So, um, this man rejects in his heart. But from this rejection, inevitably, there comes a point where he outwardly rebels. A time comes when he says, I can't actually put, put up with being in this house. It's not enough for me that my heart is not in it. I've got to leave. So he asks his father for a share of his inheritance. Now, he's the younger son, so that would mean that he's entitled to a third of his father's goods. The older son would be entitled to a double portion. So he says, give me the portion of goods that falls to me, what I'm due to get. And so the father divides to them his livelihood. And then a few days afterwards, the younger son gathers everything he's got and he journeys to a far country. Now this share of his inheritance is normally, of course, something he would get after his father dies. And in fact, it's quite an awkward process for his father. I'll come back to that later. But for his father, it does involve uh, converting a third of his estate effectively into cash and giving that cash to his youngest son. So it's, it's quite a problem all around. But his father agrees to it because his son's heart is set upon it. But it is something that he would normally get at death. I, I read uh, some time back that somebody said that this was almost the son's way of saying, I wish you were dead to his father. Now, maybe that's putting it too strong. But the fact is that whether he wishes his father dead or not, he clearly wants out. He's had enough of his father and enough of his father's house. Now, when, when that comes about in a covenant child or a covenant son or a covenant daughter's experience, it will show itself in a certain way. Your church attendance will begin to slacken off because you, you don't want to be there and you feel you're reaching an age where you can assert that you don't want to be there. If necessary, it can go further than leaving God's house. It can actually mean leaving your own parents' house, your own mother or your own father, because they belong to the household of God. And you've come to the understanding that to somehow get rid of God and get rid of the house of God, you somehow have to be rid of your own house and rid of your own parents. It's a terrible thing to contemplate, but it's a choice people make. And like I said, not everyone realizes where the choice is going. The pretext, of course, is independence. And, of course, we can all understand how some people want a measure of independence. You want uh, maybe your own flat or your own house or something like that. Well, well, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with wanting independence itself. It's natural to reach a stage where you want independence. But to say that this is a desire for independence is to, mark the, is to mask the true nature of the problem. The true nature of the problem is you've had enough of God and his house and his religion. And what you see, notice his 
as his most perfect law, but his rules, his binding rules and his commandments. So really, this isn't a story about chasing bright lights in London or something like that. I suppose there's an element of that that comes into this kind of thing. This is all about getting away from God. That's what the parable's about. And of course, you'll notice that he's in a hurry to do so because we're told that when he receives his inheritance, it took a while for his father to sell the property, turn it into cash and give it to his son. But we're told that not many days after, the younger son gathers everything he's got and he journeys to a far country. Can't get out quick enough. He obviously felt that way for a long time. It's like an elastic band stretching, and when you let it go, I mean, the, it's the tension. I can get out, so I'm going. I'm going. You'll notice, too, how careless he is doing it. It's not just the difficulty for his father of uh, converting a third of the estate into cash. It's, it's, it's the more fundamental fact that, that it's a grief to his father, but he doesn't really think. Or, or if he thinks, it doesn't hurt him too much. Now, the... The Apostle Paul speaks to Timothy about a day when natural affection declines, and he says that that happens in perilous seasons. And I've said more than once that that is one of the great marks of us being in a perilous season right now, that natural affection declines, uh, that there is a lack of love, the kind of love that should exist between brothers and sisters and mothers and daughters and fathers and sons and husbands and wives. It's not there. Selfish, selfishness and narcissism have taken over where such love should prevail. This man, interestingly, just doesn't seem to care. You can tell from the father's reception of his son later on how much it grieved him for the son to leave. Now, many of us, I suppose, left home, not in the way in which this man left home, uh, but still didn't think much of how it hurt our parents to leave. I was saying that to somebody recently. I remember when myself, as the youngest son, the youngest of five, left the home, and I was last to leave the family home, uh, to leave to go to the mainland. I, I never really thought of what that meant for my mother and father. I, I just didn't. Maybe it doesn't say much about me, but maybe you can identify with that yourself too, that the big thing for yourself was going away. No, I didn't leave the house with this spirit at all. But how much more it would have grieved the father to see the younger son go with this spirit. It's a grief. It's a pain. A real pain in the heart to see someone you've raised and loved and someone to whom you are giving and offering everything just turn away. Say, I don't want any of it. He didn't think of his father's grief. And you'll notice, too, that he makes the decision to go as far away as he can. He journeys to a far country. That's not an accidental detail or an incidental detail in the story. That's not just a, a stroke of the paintbrush to help us see the picture better, but actually means nothing in the grand scheme of things. It does mean something in the grand scheme of things. The bottom line is that he wants to get as far away from God and his house and his father's house as he possibly could. 
beyond his father's reach. You know, it's an amazing thing in life that you actually can't get away from God, even if you want to. You can't. And in fact, you never will. Sometimes hell is described as a place without God. I can understand what that is trying to convey, but it is not the truth. In hell, you will be very conscious of the reality of God, but sad to say, only of his wrath. But you can never flee from God. Never flee from him. The sad thing is, though, that this son is clearly renouncing his status. So, so when we're looking at this man's fall, we're not just looking from a, we're not just looking at a fall from wealth into poverty. We're looking at a fall from sonship into something else, in the sense that he's renouncing it. I'm leaving church. I'm forgetting my baptism. I couldn't care less about my baptism. I, I couldn't care less about what I learned in Sabbath school or whatever it is. I'm off. I'm off. When you think of it that way, how gracious God is to actually reverse this process. He doesn't reverse it for everybody. For how many people does he reverse it? Well, I don't know. I wish I knew. And I'll tell you one reason why I wish I knew. Because this country of ours is full of people who have made this choice. You know, people like myself have often thought that we would like to see the Reformed Presbyterian churches come together in this land. But as I, as I addressed to several ministers in a letter recently, if we put everybody who attends church in the Free Church Continuing, in the RP Church, and in the APC Church, and in the Free Presbyterian Church, if you put them all together, they wouldn't fit into St. Jude's in Scotland. So where are all these people? Where are they all? Where are all the children and the children's children of the people who believed? Where are they? Where are the baptized? Take it wider. Think even of the Church of Scotland itself, which of course has lost so much of its commitment to truth. But still, where are its children? The number of people that have opted out of the Father's house is in the hundreds of thousands and in the millions. That's shocking. And many of them opted out with exactly this mentality. I really need to get out. And I want to get out. Renouncing your father's house, renouncing your status. And very often, and this has to be said too, Sometimes it's in spite of what they saw and heard. There's no fault in this father. There's no fault in this father's house. And uh, sometimes uh, good Christian parents see this happening. But sometimes, you know, we have to reflect that a part of it may have been our own fault. And it's never easy when that thought comes in. Never easy at all. We thought of it recently in connection with David and Absalom. How Absalom went the way he did partly because of something in David. 
And David knew that. And it added to the pain when the man was hung by his own hair on a tree, showing every sign of being cursed. And we need to examine ourselves as parents and say, well, let's make sure we don't fail them. Let's make sure we teach them at least what's right. Let's make sure that we model love and kindness, even if in heart we are grieved. Let's make sure that we surround them with prayer and that we raise them with prayer. And sometimes one of the worst things that we can do is leave them to a system of life and education that negates everything you believe in. And maybe one day, many of ourselves will regret that very choice, that we let our children be raised in a thoroughly, I won't say a godless education system, I would say an anti-Christian education system. If it were godless, it wouldn't be so bad. I wonder who amongst ourselves is making this kind of choice. The son planned it before he did it. Maybe you're planning it in your heart. But there's another dimension to his fall. It's not just that he falls from his status, but gradually he begins to fall from everything. His wealth, his so-called happiness, everything he's got, he falls away from it. We're told that after he journeys to his far country in verse 13, that he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The word prodigal has fallen out of use. It means just um, wasteful or extravagant. In other words, he's careless with his resources. He wastes what is God's. Profligate, prodigal, same kind of thing. He squanders it. He squanders it because he's spending it as he pleased. And he's spending it on what he likes. In a way, it's no surprise because it cost him nothing to get, to get it. And because it cost him nothing to get it, he lost it as easily as he acquired it. It's always a dangerous thing to put a lot of wealth into the hands of somebody who didn't actually earn that wealth. And most wise fathers will realize that in connection with sons and mothers too, in connection with daughters. Cost him nothing to get it. Therefore, he's one of these people who'll know the price of everything but the value of nothing. Just squanders it on what he likes. We're told in verse 30 according to the elder brother, that he devoured his inheritance with harlots, with prostitutes. Now, the difficulty with that is that that's the elder brother saying that. And obviously, the elder brother has developed a strong distaste for his younger brother. And I suppose it's in his interest to paint him as black as he wants. And you'll notice that the, the parable puts this these words into the mouth of the older brother. It doesn't come from the father's mouth. It doesn't come directly from the Holy Spirit's mouth either, as it were. It, it is put into the mouth of the elder brother. So we don't know whether to take it at face value or not. But it may be true. Maybe the reason the older brother can say it to the father is because the father knows it to be true. 
If so, it makes the man's life blacker still. Wasted everything he got, and he wasted it with harlots and unriotous living. So it's a rebellion that obviously involves doing what he wants. Now, everybody puts some restraints on themselves, otherwise you can't live. But he wants as few restraints as possible so that he can does what he ple- do what he pleases. And of course, as far as he's concerned, he's, he's in control of the whole process. Just like everybody else who opts out of godly living and opts out of the Father's house, they think they're in control. When you take the choice, you think you're in control. But you'll notice, of course, that his fortunes change. First of all, he's got nothing left. When he had spent all, in verse 14. Doesn't matter how big the pot is, unless you're sensible with it, it eventually just peters out. You've got nothing left. Now, the problem is that most people who reject God tend to trust in resources like this kind, and uh, money is necessary in order to live the kind of life that you really want to live. But when the money that you trust in disappears, well, what exactly have you got? And that's heightened for him by the providence of a severe famine coming into the land. Now, that, of course, is God's doing. But for the first time in his life, you'll notice that he begins to be in want at the end of 14, verse 14. Or simply, for us today, he began to be in need. First time in his life that he needs something instead of wanting something. In his father's house, he wanted things and um, things that he couldn't get, but all his needs were looked after. Everything he really needed was looked after in his father's house. But for the first time, he really needs something. Needs it. And he discovers the helplessness of, of not being able to get it. This is what happens when you really discover that the world isn't as friendly as it showed itself to be. For all its alluring, for all its attractiveness and its seductive power, this is what happens when you first discover that the world is not really like that. It doesn't owe you a living. It doesn't owe you an education. It doesn't owe you an income. Do you know what the world owes you? Nothing. Nothing at all. Once you step outside of God's rights, God's privileges, and God's gifts, you'll discover that there's no obligation. We like to think of ourselves because of political systems and political philosophies. We like to think of ourselves as being owed an education. You are owed a health service. Are you? Who said? Where did you get that right? Who gave you that right? And you say, well, I just, I just have it. Really? Do you understand that by nature we have zero rights? Do you understand that you don't even have a right to life by nature? It's God who gives you your life. You actually forfeited that right when you sinned. 
And by having a sinful nature, you're forfeited the right to life. And that's why before we can find our way back to God, we have to drop that language of rights and recognize ourselves to be, as we heard since we were children in our father's house, deserving of nothing but your wrath and your curse. That's what, that's what we have a right to. I have a right by nature to the wrath and curse of God. Nothing else. And he discovers this. In the far country, he discovers that the world owes him nothing. And for the first time in his life, he's, he's not in control. Well, the reality is that he never was, was he? But, but now he discovers that he's not in control. What does he do? Well, we're told in verse 15 that he joins himself to a citizen of the far country. Now, that's just a very graphic way of saying that the man who's opted out of God's country and chosen a far country tries to sort out his problems in the far country itself. It doesn't really matter what you make this citizen to represent. It doesn't matter. What matters is that my problems are in the far country and that's where I'm going to get the answer. In other words, the answer is not going back to God. The answer is not going back home. The answer is to be found in the world itself. Things have gone wrong for me in the world. Right, okay, I have to accept that. But now I can put things right. And he obviously sees a, a person of substance in the far country. And he just goes, you know, he doesn't want to do this because he's been, in spite of himself, he's had a good life in his father's house. He doesn't realize that, but he had a good life. He had a good upbringing. He had so much that he took for granted. But this is the first time he's going to be really dependent, and he doesn't like that word. He's going to be dependent on a citizen in the far country. And then he discovers that this dependence isn't really what he hoped it would be either. Because the world typically doesn't really care for him. This, this man, this citizen in the far country is out for himself like everybody in the far country is. He's out for himself. What does he do? Well, he puts him feeding the swine. He's feeding the swine. And there he experiences hunger. The swine ate the carob pods and he desired them. It doesn't tell us if he ate them. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But it does emphasize that no one gave him anything in verse 16. No one gave him anything. You may say, well, that's a really cruel picture of the world. Yes, because the world is really cruel. It's only where God's common grace restrains it that you don't see that cruelty so much. When God's common grace disappears, boy, you see it surfacing. It's your problem. You look after it. You're a foreigner in this country. Well, just look after yourself. It's, it's a harsh thing to meet the reality of a godless country. Very harsh thing. As well as being hungry, there's the sense of shame. Maybe even he possibly felt a sense of shame himself being with the pigs. I mean, being with the pigs is an important thing for a Jew, is it not? The swine was a prohibited, it was an unclean animal, and pork is a prohibited meat. It still is amongst them to this day. 
So there was a sense of degradation. This man, look, look where he's been brought. This, this man who was going to make a way for himself. Look, look where he's been brought. The pigs. Uh, where the, it is possible that he himself felt that degradation, even though that was one of the rules and the commandments that belonged to his father's house, which he was trying to get away from. You know, it's interesting that in a way, it's very hard to get that far from your father's house. You would still feel, you know, the power of being with the pigs. And certainly the Lord puts this into the parable just to highlight to the Pharisees that he's telling the story to, and to highlight to everybody that is, that, that's listening to his parable, just how low this man's come. Look at him. Look at him. He's with the pigs. He's envying the pigs their food. Degradation brought low. You know, it's a terrible thing to be brought low in one way. In another way, once this man had taken the decision to go to a far country, in a way it's as well that he was brought low. Because at least one thing you could say about it is that he begins to understand what the choices really are in life. What are the choices in life? When you've been brought up in your father's house, you're so deceived about these choices. The, the devil makes you see your father's house as cramped and restrictive and boring and whatever other adjective that you wish to use. And he makes the, the far country look so glittering and so appealing and, like I said, so seductive. But this time he's, he's able to at least begin the process of seeing things differently. Now, so far, he doesn't see his father's house any differently. There's no indication that he does, but he certainly sees where he is differently. Have any of yourselves begun to waken up to what the world actually is? The animus that governs it? The hostility to God that's deep down underneath the surface? The, the sheer ugliness and brutality and selfishness of it? When the restraints are taken off? We get even in our own supposedly refined day and age, we get glimpses of it. Rioters and streets and windows smashed and people hurt and violence and robbery and intimidation. Brutality, ugliness, rape, murder. And suddenly you realize it's not all wonderful out there. Absolutely not. And I suppose, I suppose if we were allowed a little glimpse into hell itself. How few these glimpses are in the Bible. We have, a, we have a glimpse or two into heaven. We have a more than a glimpse or two into heaven. We have very little by way of glimpses into hell. But those we do are full of things like gnashing of teeth, anguish and rage and isolation. That's where it all leads that's what the godlessness of the world is pointing towards, like a giant signpost saying, this way is real hunger. This way is real degradation. This way is real isolation. This way is need that can never, ever be met and fulfilled. That's what I mean by saying, in a way, it's good for him, because sometimes we speak of bottoming out. Now, not everyone bottoms out in such a way as to come back. I mean, it would all be wonderful if we could say that because everybody's experience would be happy ever after. But it's not like that. 
Can we say that for every one who returns, there's nine who don't? But none of these will return without bottoming. That's the point, you see. At the end of the day, God is in charge of the far country. He's in charge of the famine, too. The famine strangely becomes a means of grace, does it not, to this man? It becomes a means of grace. But as far as he's concerned, he needs to be brought low. You know, the, the greater our pride and the greater our independence, the more low we need to be brought. There's no point in thinking that all our pride is the same and all our sense of independence is the same. It's not. Some, some people are really, really proud and they have to be brought really, really low. And in their testimonies, they'll tell you that. They'll, t they'll tell you that they had to be brought low and, and they won't be ashamed to confess that they were proud because that's what they were. That's what they were. We, we looked some time ago now at an example of such a person, Naaman, a commander of the army of Syria, who discovered through the slave girl in his house that there was a man in Israel who could heal her. And uh, it was a degradation for him. You see, this is going the other way around. Here's a man of the world who discovers that there's a, a solution in the church for his sickness. But he doesn't want to lower himself. He doesn't want to lower himself to go to Israel. So he comes down with all his wealth because he's going to buy the cure from Elijah the prophet. He's going to buy it. He's going to be no, he's going to be no debtor to the church, no debtor to God. He's going to be no debtor to a Christian. He's going to buy his own, his own health. He's going to buy it. And, of course, he won't even come off his horse. He, he sends his servant to Elijah's door. And we're told later that he expected in his heart that Elijah would come out and just touch, touch where he had leprosy, and he'd be healed given the money and back home. And he's just the man he always was, the celebrity in Syria. But Elijah is led by God to play him at his own game. Elijah doesn't even come out to see him. He sends the servant back out and gives him a message of utter humiliation. Come off your, come off your high horse and dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be clean. Oh, he can't stand that can't stand the thought of doing that. But, but he's got to come low because he's so high. He's so independent and he's so proud and he's such a self-made man. And that's what the world admires, isn't it? A self-made woman and a self-made man. No, no. As far as God goes, and as far as salvation goes, you have to become a little child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to be humbled. And the fact of the matter is that some of us need more humbling than others. In the scriptures, we read of some people who are far from the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us of other people who are near to the kingdom of God. Well, this man is miles away. He's chosen a far country because in the parable, that's representative of someone who's miles away. And he smiles away supremely in his pride and how his pride has come low. Has God taken yourself low like this? If God has taken somebody that you know low like this, pray for this man. 
Pray for this woman. If God is really bringing people that you know into ruin and degradation, that's something that should put oil on your wheels and move you to prayer, that it may be God's way of stripping that pride away and bringing them like a little child to seek their father's house again. That's why at the end of the day you can't despair if you've got a prodigal. You mustn't despair. Some of you maybe have prodigals here. And uh, maybe sometimes you, you might even feel that you had a hand in making your son or your daughter a prodigal. Although watch that. Although I've told you to be honest in, in your assessment about that, watch the devil getting a hold of you for that and saying it is your fault and it's exclusively your fault. Watch that. The devil will pin that on you. Don't listen to that stuff. But if you've got a prodigal, rejoice that this parable is there. Rejoice that this parable is there. And rejoice, too, in the fact that it's a call to you to pray for this prodigal, especially if they are reaching lowness and degradation, because is that not a call to take the kingdom of heaven by violence, to seize it, to lay hold of God, with the spirit of Jacob is said, who said, I will not let you go until you bless me, and I will not let you go until you bless my child, like the Syrophoenician woman who wanted healing for her daughter. And even when Christ didn't answer her, she still persevered. And when Christ apparently rejected her by saying it's not right to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs, she says, yes, even the little dogs will eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Your son or your daughter prodigal son, prodigal daughter, wasted and squandered and brought to nothing. Well, I will not let you go until you bless me, said Jacob. I will not let you go until you bless my daughter, said the Syrophoenician woman. So he is brought to utter need and to utter ruin. Let's leave him for the moment there and let's call upon the name of God in prayer. Eternal God, uh, we pray that we would not uh, give way to despair, even in the face of situations such as this, that invade our own homes, our lives, and our families. We are thankful for passages such as this in Scripture. However often read and heard, they retain their force and their power because they speak to us in the very deepest need and the things that touch us the most, even the welfare of our own flesh and blood. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would encourage us to take hold of you, the Lord, the one who is, after all, represented in this parable, in the person of the Father, grieved at the Son's departure, but nonetheless welcoming him at his return. Hear our prayers and the longings of our hearts. In our great Redeemer's name, amen.
Let's um, close by singing, uh, well, by reading, <laughs> sheer force of habit, over 30 years, nearly. Psalm 131, page 422, and the tune is Palerma, 131. This is a psalm that just uh, speaks of the importance of humility. Of course, it's important for entering the kingdom. We cannot enter it except we become like children. But it's important, too, for growth in the spiritual life, like the, uh, like the wheat bowing its head when it's ripe. So does the Christian. We grow by becoming low. My heart, not haughty is, O Lord. My eyes, not lofty be. Nor do I deal in matters great or things too high for me. I surely have myself behaved with quiet spirit and mild. As child of mother wind, my soul is like a wind child. Upon the Lord let all the hope of Israel rely, even from the time that present is unto eternity. We'll hear the psalm sung and we'll join with it in spirit. to receive God's blessing. In the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.